This is Works in Progress, a production of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. Chan Noriega is a professor in the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. And since 2002, he served as the director of the Chicano Studies Research Center at UCLA. His approach to scholarship is one that benefits the academy and the community. We have as our kind of guiding principle the idea of research that makes a difference. That research can be wide-ranging. Chan is an editor of books and journals, he's a curator, his work spans the social sciences, humanities, health policy, the arts, anything that relates to the Chicano experience, and that includes the centrality of art in social movements. Without the arts, these movements cannot create the basis for communicating internally, as well as conveying the significance and the meaning and the emotional impact of their message. You'll get to hear more from Chan as he and other panelists take on the question, what is power? It's part of 10 Questions Reckoning, the live discussion series led by the arts that draws scholars and thinkers from across the campus to take on complicated topics. I talked to Chan about a few of his many interests and projects. We started by talking about a current project that explores faith, spirituality, and religion in the Mexican-American community. We're focusing primarily on Los Angeles, looking back at the last 60 years or so. And the idea there was the center actually has the largest archival collections related to the Mexican-American and Latino communities. And as part of that, we do have an emphasis on Southern California. And what we are realizing is that We've looked at these collections, we've brought them in, we've processed them, we, we make them available, but we don't necessarily take into account the role of, of religion or belief as a part of that. Uh, we're looking primarily at the social, the cultural, or the political. And it seemed like, you know, when we looked into that deeper, we realized we're, we're missing a level of description for these collections that can make them relevant more broadly, but that can also kind of look at the community in more dynamic ways. So this is not just about an entity that's been pushing for um, civil rights or equality or for cultural heritage or affirmation. They're also deeply influenced by different degrees of, of faith or spirituality or religion. And it's important to take that into account. I know that uh, faith is uh, important to the Hispanic community. There are open door, small churches throughout LA. Mm -hmm. Were they important in terms of organizing and contributing to, for example, the Chicano moratorium, the way Black churches in the South were integral to the organizing around the civil rights movement? They were, and you could even argue that they're even more so. You're looking at a community where 91% really identify with religion or faith. If you go back and you think about it, you say, well, you look at the Chicano arts and the emergence of the Chicano arts in Los Angeles. And a lot of the key organizations really had fairly direct ties to the church. Uh, you think of something like Self-Help Graphics, uh, which is founded by a Franciscan nun, as well as two uh, gay Mexican artists. Mexican, not, not Mexican-American. That's pretty significant, I think, to say, well, this is an element at work that informs the particular nature of social justice as a guiding principle of the arts, but also of 
relevance or direct impact to the community itself. That, that, that this should not be something that is aiming strictly for museums or for art galleries, but is a useful part of everyday life and of political consciousness and social consciousness. Mm -hmm. One of the venues that you're looking at in this grant is uh, Church of the Epiphany, which is an Episcopal church yeah. um, in Lincoln Heights. And actually, this is where some of the organizers met to plan out the moratorium. Well, not only that, they, they were able to get space to organize. A lot of efforts like uh, La Raza magazine and newspaper, uh, the relationship with churches was very pivotal because they, they were a part of the community and they provided support. And they also understood what the activists and, and, and students in the Chicano movement were trying to do to better their community, to, to improve uh, their access to everything that's available in the society for everyone else, mm -hmm. right? What's your um, hope for outcome with this project? Is there sort of a community empowerment angle to this, or is it purely scholarly and academic? Well, we are at a major research university, and, and the Chicano Studies Research Center is a research center, so we always lead with that. But we have as our kind of guiding principle the idea of research that makes a difference. So it's not just about producing scholarship or creating resources that are only going to be used by academics, that are only going to be used internal to higher education, but that that's a starting point to really lay down a foundation that can be used more broadly. So for example, when we bring in archival collections, most of the way archives operate is, from the point of view of the community, is that's the truck that shows up and takes away our history. Mm -hmm. We never have access to it. Uh, you, you know, you look at some research universities, you have to be a student or a certified scholar to come in there. And we, so we have to break that down. And we have to enter into a discussion with the individual or with the organizations as we're talking with them about bringing in a collection to be clear about what they need. Uh, how can this serve their needs? Not just how do we preserve history, but how do we create a collaboration that benefits everyone? So once you can sort that out and once you can find the outcomes that we need to produce, you've really done something very special. You've shown exactly where research overlaps with the on-the-ground experiences of a community that has largely been excluded from these types of institutions. You are an adjunct curator at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. You've curated a number of exhibitions there, including exhibitions for both of the Pacific Standard Time initiatives that the Getty produced. Mm -hmm. There was a report that came out in 1994 called Willful Neglect, the Smithsonian Institution and U.S. Latinos. And this report which came out more than 25 years ago, found that the Smithsonian has neglected willfully um, the Latino population of the United States. They couldn't identify a single area of Smithsonian operations in which Latinos were appropriately represented and that Latinos were found to be absent from positions of power and authority within the institution. Now, that's specific to the Smithsonian's, but um, that's basically true across museums. I think something like 3% of museum leadership is Latino. Now, in the 25, 26 years since that report came out, do you feel like much has changed? And is there a lot of room left for improvement there? I think that things may have changed, generally speaking, to some extent. 
But the nature of the, of the issue now is that whatever rate of change you have, it is far below the rate of growth of the community itself. And so I think in a way, no, things have not improved. There have been some hopeful signs here and there. There have been some institutions that have really committed uh, to be representative of their population and to also diversify who they reach out to, who's their audience, uh, and how do you market to that. But it hasn't shifted overall, I think. I was actually part of a, an effort um, recently to update the Willful Neglect Report, and things really hadn't improved, uh, had not. Uh, but there were some really significant steps forward that had taken place. And they had taken place uh, largely under the leadership of um, the Latino Center that was established out of that. And what they had been able to do was to very slowly and methodically build up the curatorial presence. And that's where change is going to happen. If you're at a university, you have to diversify the faculty. If you're at a museum, you have to diversify the curators because those are the people that produced what those institutions are there to do. They produce exhibitions, they create collections, they teach the next generation. They create new scholarship for the fields that they work in. But they also produce the leadership for those organizations. You have very few universities that are not run by a professor or museums that aren't run by a former curator. And um, that's, I think, the main issue facing the field of the arts and facing higher education. So do you see it as a, a pipeline issue then? Because I know you've um, spearheaded a curatorial program at LACMA. Oh, yeah. So, so part of it is just bringing young people into the museum where they may not have felt welcome or invited in the past and showing them that this is a possibility for them career-wise. I think you have to do a lot of things. I think the ref reflexive uh, response on the part of a lot of institutions is to say the pipeline it has holes in it leading up to our door. So what can we do? And I think with LACMA, they were more proactive and said, well, no, let's see how we can jumpstart it. Um, if the issue is we need to get people into PhD programs so that they can become curators, and that's not happening, we can't just say we have nothing to do with that. And so, you know, I worked with Michael Govan and, um, you know, he, he actually took the initiative on this. And this was something that, Myself, uh, Pilar Tompkins-Rivas, and we've been working together for a number of years, we saw the issue here. And the issue is that um, you have to reach back early enough to get people into the pathways that will lead to becoming a curator. And so, you know, Michael asked uh, me and Brooke Davis Anderson if we would put something together that we could pitch to the Mellon Foundation. So Brooke and I kind of developed an idea of this would be a program in which the student comes in during the summer, the first summer as part of a larger cohort. They get an intensive week-long uh, introduction to what it means to be a curator. They get to meet all of the different departments involved. They get to do a virtual exhibition as a group. And then out of that, they get a chance to apply for the mentorship mm -hmm. that will stay with them until they graduate and they'll be assigned a mentor who is a senior curator and they can work with that person and learn things that you're not going to learn in an art history classroom. And then the following summer, 
they'll be that person's intern. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, you mix all of these things together, and the program has been an astounding success. We also scheduled a, an annual um, convening where the interns from all the different museums that were part of this would meet and also have a chance to share experiences. And it was really very moving to hear them. You know, I said, say, well, tell me about your relationship with the museum. What do you, what do, you do? I said, oh, I've got the key. Uh, if I'm, you know, done with my homework and everything, I'm a little bored, I'll go over to the museum and I'll just hang out because I have access to it. It's beginning to feel like my home. There's a complicated dynamic going on there because the same, I then turn around and say, well, how do your friends and family respond? And they say, well, they don't know what the hell I'm doing. They don't know why I'm doing this. They say, that museum has never done anything for our people. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important to appreciate is both of those perspectives are absolutely right. And the only person who will have to bear the weight of negotiating between them is that student and that future curator. And to realize that to be a good curator, you have to embrace the profession. You have to really rise to its highest standards and challenges, or you fail your responsibilities as a curator. But to not listen to your community uh, means that you will not bring something new into that museum, a shift, a change in the way of thinking is an opening up to different types of appreciation and understanding of the arts. And that's a very challenging thing to do. And, And it's at the crux of any diversity program. And if a diversity program does not address that, does not make a space for it, they are not only failing the people they're bringing into it, they're harming them. I want to talk about some of the shows that you've curated, specifically the 2017 show, Home So Different, So Appealing. This brought together more than 100 works from 39 U.S., Latino, and Latin American artists. And um, you co-curated that with Marie Carmen Ramirez at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and Pilar Tompkins Rivas, who you mentioned, who was at the Vincent Price Art Museum. Now she's at the Lucas Museum. Can you talk a little bit about that show, Home, So Different, So Appealing, and what made it different from other Latino or Latin American art exhibitions that you've curated? Well, to give a a backdrop, I've been an active curator since 1990. So this is my 30th year as as a curator working with museums. In each and every instance when I'm curating, I am trying to pose a challenge to myself relative to the field. What hasn't been done or what has been done in a very particular way and can be approached from another perspective. For the second initiative, Pilar and I had done some very distinctive kind of interventions in terms of how you can approach art. Uh, from somewhat traditional to really trying to come at it from a completely new angle. But we never got away from the sense that Chicano art or Latino art is a thing, is a coherent category. Now, no one thinks American art is, right? They shouldn't. It's too complex. Uh, There are going to be too many contradictions. So Pilar and I were really trying to to grapple with that. And this is before Mari Carmen... uh, came on board. And so finally, we were were sitting in my patio and I said, look, here's a pad of paper. I've got a pad of paper. Just write down 10 artworks that you carry around with you. And by that, I mean, these are works that stay with you. Whenever you have a chance to see them again, you will. And in some ways, they sit there at the core 
of how you think of yourself as a curator. So we write these down, right? Because why not? We had tried so many other things. And um, we looked at them and we thought, damn, they all have to do with home. This is really something because we would have never thought of doing something on the subject of home, right? <laughs> and uh, as people told us at the time, you know, that, that's not current. That's kind of, you know, stale, right? Was I think the word you... We thought, well, what's happening here? And what we realized is we had not really thought of the possibility of taking up a universal concept and seeing what that meant for artists and art coming out of a certain group. And not thinking that that group represents the universal concept. It is just an example of it. And that would be an important challenge to an institution that allows one group defined by race and gender to represent universal gestures. This is really interesting work because it gets you out of the kind of more sentimental notion of mi casa es tu casa and familia and all these concepts that ultimately become somewhat sentimental and romantic as a definition of a community. Yeah, every culture thinks of themselves that way. And I said, no, 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 no. Let's look at where a certain kind of art that's made after about 1957 that is breaking from a tradition of art being sculpture or painting, but is also really fully embracing what someone like Duchamp starts earlier in the century of shifting to the notion of the idea and of the action of the artist, him or herself, as a defining measure of art rather than the object, right? And when we did that, we realized it gave us an alternative history of post-abstract expressionist art, period. Because these were artists that weren't part of that narrative, but were doing similar work. But it gives you a different view of why those changes were taking place and why home was so critical to it. And it actually becomes part of the U.S. economic policy that the economy will be driven by single-family homes. And those homes will have electricity. And then we see how that just began to utterly break down as it went into overdrive after the Second World War. And the U.S. model of economic development gets pushed out to the rest of the world. And it immediately turns one third of the world's urban population into squatters, into people living in shanty towns. It creates middle classes in these societies. It creates the basis for a certain kind of nation state configuration. And it pushes a lot of people out onto the margins. And that that's what the artists were dealing with. Sometimes these are artists working decades apart as well as nations apart, but they're onto something. They're on the same wavelength in a way. I want to pivot to a, a different topic. I saw that you recently were part of a LACMA panel discussion that was about racism and public health in the time of COVID-19. This is actually an issue that you are very involved in. You're on the advisory board of the UCLA Center for Population Health and Health Disparities in East LA and the UCLA Kaiser Permanente Center for Health Equity. Since COVID began, Latinos have represented 60% of COVID cases in California and nearly half of the state's deaths. And that's despite the fact that Latinos make up less than 40% of California's population. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, what do you attribute this to? Is it racism? Is it um, just lack of health insurance and health access? Is it willful neglect or something else? I think it's a combination of these. And, you know, in the United States, we really don't have a very strong health care system, but we have an even weaker public health system. And the nature of well-being and health is such that those who are most vulnerable are also those who are most vulnerable in all other aspects of our society. They're the object of uh, racial violence. They have more precarity in terms of their employment. And they are also the object of violence coming from the institutions meant to protect us, including the police and the military. And with COVID, you know, what it did is make clear that the groups that are most profoundly affected start with Native Americans, then Latinos and African Americans. And I think with Latinos and Blacks, it's pretty clear that these are the populations that are really doing a lot of the essential work that that make our society function. And what has been really, uh, I think, really unfathomable is the way in which our society and our government has turned around and said, this is essential work. We must protect the work. The work must be done. And it has been done in a way that basically increases the vulnerability of the worker that really relies on their disposability. And in the case of Latinos, their invisibility. And it was important that LACMA as a museum really take a position on this issue and then also show where art is. And for me, the issue with art in terms of social justice is that even the people fighting for social justice often miss the fact that at the core of any successful social movement is the arts. That without the arts, these movements cannot create the basis for communicating internally, as well as conveying the significance and the meaning and the emotional impact of their message. And I think that's always been the case. uh, And in particular, prior to the era of social media, other than telephone trees, which most people don't even know, (laughs) know, of how do you get calls out to a lot of people, it was the posters, it was the murals, it was the performance pieces, and it was the iconography that came out of that artistic effort that really gave the movement the ability to communicate with themselves and to the world at large in ways that were very effective. So here's a question that I have, um, and it's about language. Mm-hmm. There's a big discussion right now over terms like uh, POC, people of color, and BIPOC or BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And it brings to mind some of the other discussions over how Latinos choose to label themselves. Are they Chicanos? I mean, you run the Chicano Studies Research Center. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's Hispanic, and we're now at the tail end of Hispanic Heritage Month. And there's Latinx, which um, even though that's become widely adopted, I would say in activist circles, um, a Pew Research Center poll that came out recently said that only about one in four U.S. Hispanics have even heard the term Latinx, and only about 3% Mm -hmm. of Latinos use it to describe themselves. How do you feel about these labels? Latinx, Hispanic, Chicano, are they interchangeable? Do you prefer some over others? For me, I think it's important to appreciate what's behind any given name. There was a reason why Mexican-American was taken up 
rather than Spanish or Hispanic. And there's a reason Chicano was taken up rather than Mexican-American. And Chicana Chicano taken up rather than Chicano. And Chicanex, Latinx, rather than what preceded it. And I think we have to appreciate that and understand that and integrate that into our understanding of ourselves, regardless of what we call ourselves. I think that that's an important step. I think that Latinx has had considerable buy-in in ways that one would not have expected, because really no other term became a rallying point for, say, museums, that we must have a Latinx curator. There are so few Latino curators in museums that if this does the trick for them, that's, that's good, right? It poses issues, but any name poses issues. Uh, personally, I, I move in between contexts and different names. It's, a, it's always a, you know, a question of what seems best suited to a moment or a context and not what's right. You know? I do think that Latinos are somewhat unique in going through more name changes than just about any group. Um, but I think we also have to take the pulse and see how much of this actually gets through and has any sort of, of meaning. But every one of these terms has a function in which I think they do a better job than anything else. But there's, you're not going to find a single term that's going to resolve all these issues. I think people of color is perfectly fine as a way of describing from one angle the kind of racial dynamics of this country. But it can also block out some of the incredible nuances. The 24% of Latino population identifies as Black, that a significant portion identifies as Indigenous or mixed Indigenous, that some identify as white. Uh, we are not a racial group, <laughs> right? And that opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of how we really get beyond a very limited approach to race that we have in this country. That was Cha Noriega, director of the Chicano Studies Research Center at UCLA. You can hear him speak at the next UCLA 10 Questions Reckoning event focused on the question, what is power? And you can find that information at arts.ucla.edu. I'm Avishai Artsy, and this has been Works in Progress. This podcast is a production of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and talk to you soon.